ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, if you would. I'm also going to ask for, I'm going to call somebody out real quick. Megan, do you mind going back there? Having problems with the computer back there? Do you mind going and seeing if you can help? Thank you very much. Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 28, as we continue on. And uh, coming to the end of this story, uh, the story of uh, really God's blessing on his people. This is the story, if we look at the book of Genesis, where, yes, it's a story of beginnings, but it's also from the beginning, it's been a story of blessings. And uh, if you think back, all the way back to the beginning of the story, uh, right at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as he created the heavens and the earth, he also blessed all of his creation. He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. He said that to the creatures. He said that to his humanity that he created. And so... All of this story has been a story of God and his blessing. It's not really a story about Adam and Eve. It's not really a story about Noah. It's not really a story about Abram or about Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. It's really a story about God and his blessing and his grace. All of this has been accomplished, has been accomplished because of God's purposes, God's blessing and God's grace. And so as we look at this text today, I hope that all of that becomes clear. And it's really a difficult text to deal with in some ways because there's so many different directions that it goes because we're now talking about the end of Jacob's life and as Jacob is sitting there and he looks at his sons and he goes to bless them as we've seen happen with other patriarchs and the other forefathers of our faith throughout the book of Genesis. He's, he's kind of in a hard spot because these, his kids are awful. Right? It's one thing to take your good kids and bring them around and say, I'm so proud of you. You're like, I'm going to put a bumper sticker on the back of my car about you're an honor student at the middle school. That's great. But he's got sons who have been murderers. He's got sons who have been, you know, who have gone out and slept with their, his wife. I mean, he's not looking at the cream of the crop here, right? He's looking at guys who, by all intents and purposes, how could God ever use them? But if he's being honest, at the end of his life, he also has very clear vision of his life. And his hindsight being 2020, he understands that God is using him. And he himself has been the scoundrel, has been the scallywag, has been the one who has gone against God's plans and has stood on his own two feet and tried by his own power and his own ability to walk in this world and to gain what the world has. So I think it's really an appropriate place to end the book as Moses is writing this to remind us that anything we have, any blessing we have in this world is by God's grace. It's an act of His mercy. It's because of His power and His purposes. It's His ability and that's it. So I I pray that today as we look at this text and we go son by son, we see a little bit of how God is working. If we look back at Genesis and we see this story of blessing, you remember the beginning that it's the story of blessing given at creation. But it's also a story of blessing lost. That when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, they, they took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they decided on their own that they wanted to be the captains of their own ship, that they wanted to be the ones who would rule their lives. They wanted to determine for themselves what is right and wrong. And in doing so, they were led down a path of destruction and death and sin. And that story of blessing lost became a story of blessing replaced where there's a curse of sin and death over all of creation And we will now die because of sin. But then God begins the process of restoring that blessing. God is not going to leave his creatures, his creation, outside of his blessing. He's building for himself a kingdom. He's going to build himself 
a, a people and a place under his rule and blessing. And as he does that, he begins to restore that blessing. And he starts with a man named Abram. And as he begins that process of restoring the blessing, it's a, it's a blessing that's going to be partially experienced on this earth, but it's always promised that it's a future blessing that's coming. They get little blessings on the earth, but they're only pictures or shadows of the greater blessing that's coming. And, and so this whole blessing now becomes not a walk with God through the garden type of moment. It becomes a walk by faith that we have hope for something that's promised. I find us living in that place. We're living in that place right now. The place between God making the promise and God fulfilling all the promises. The place where we know that it's true that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, but we don't seem to be experiencing them all every day. Anybody else in that place right now? I, I find us to be in that place where... I'm going to cough real I find us to be in that place where... I like to call it the already but the not yet, right? Where we we know it's all going to happen. We're just not experiencing it fully. We know that in heaven, sin will be done away with. Death will be done away with. Suffering will be done away with. But today I'm going to sin. I'm going to deal with suffering and there's going to be death. We will actually have a burial down in the in the cemetery today. So this is the reality of our world How do we walk with hope? How do we walk waiting for the promise to be fulfilled? Jacob comes to his sons, and you would almost think he's in a hopeless place. He's at the end of his life, and ironically, now he's the one with glazed over eyes. So he, if you remember, he he duped his father, who was blind and glazed over eyes. He chose one wife over the other because she was weak-eyed. And now he's weak-eyed, going blind, and he's adopted his two grandsons, Joseph's sons, into his family. And now he's got to stand or lay beside his other sons and say, here's your blessing. And if, you're, if we're being honest as we read through it, there's not much blessing to be given. So what would it be like? What would it be like first to be Jacob where you've got to bless your sons? You know that God is faithful. You know that he's going to keep his promises. He said he's going to make you into a great nation. And now you have 70 people in your family. You're not a great nation yet. But if you flip forward to Exodus chapter 1, you see that over time God makes them into a great nation. He causes them to truly be fruitful and multiply in Egypt. So he's going to keep his promises. And you believe that God will keep his promises. You're just not sure how he's going to use these guys to do it. Imagine yourself in that position as Jacob. But now imagine yourself as one of the sons coming in. You know what you've done. You know who you are. You've been reminded of it in spades so far in the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph? God didn't let you get away with that one. But instead, now, even through the process of redemption and reconciliation, you've been reminded of your sin, and now you come before your father. You don't know how much he knows you're guessing he knows more than he's letting on so i can't imagine what it would be like to be the sons coming before their father but i want you to see his response to them as he blesses them look with me if you would genesis chapter 49 then jacob called his sons and said gather yourselves together that i may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come his blessing of them is actually going to come more as a prophecy than anything else it's, it's stuff that may not even happen to them in their lifetime, but it's going to be to their sons and their sons' sons and their sons' sons' sons. So their descendants are going to 
reap all of this that they were sowing during their lifetime. So he calls them to assemble. He says, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. And he starts with Reuben, the firstborn. Reuben, you are my firstborn. And if you remember Reuben, Reuben was the one who took his, his servant, his handmaiden, his Bilhah, the father or the mother of some of his brothers, and laid with her in order to try to usurp his father's authority and get the blessing. Jacob really didn't do anything about that in his lifetime, but now on his deathbed, he's going to have something to say to Reuben. Reuben, you're my firstborn. You can imagine Reuben's eyes getting really big, right? Here we go. My might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Oh, good. It's going to be a good one. Right? You can almost imagine a sigh of relief. Then he comes back with, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob in this moment is going to disqualify Reuben from the inheritance, from being the one who carries forward the promises of God. He's not going to be the primary way that God is going to keep his promises. He takes him from his place of preeminence and he lowers him. Though he was virile, he was unfaithful. Though he was strong, he had no leadership or resolve. And the the people of Reuben's line will be the same way. They'll easily turn from the left to the right. They'll easily be swung from one way to the other, much like we read in the New Testament that we're meant to all be built up into the body of Christ and built up to Christ who is our head so that we won't be driven by the waves of doctrine and the winds of this world from one side to the other. Reuben will find himself running in every direction trying to grab what this world holds. He'll be unstable as water. So then he comes to the next two. Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi, you, your brothers. If you remember Simeon and Levi, Simeon and Levi, they, they had some stuff in their closet as well. In fact, their, their anger and their murder were well known. If you remember, their sister had been raped by the culture around them by a man of Shechem. And when they found out about this, their father did nothing about it, and they made a deal in order to become part of the family. They said all of the men in Shechem needed to be circumcised, and so they sent them all off to be circumcised. And when they were all resting from being circumcised in a weakened state, they went into the city and killed them all. Jacob didn't do anything about that. He just said, look how difficult you've made life for me. That was his response to his murderous sons. Now on his deathbed, he stands before them, and this is what he says. To them. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here, Simeon and Levi are disqualified because of their anger, because of their murderous ways, because they took what they thought was vengeance and instead turned it into revenge. They had no regard for God and His might and His willingness to keep His promises. Instead, they took murder upon themselves and their anger. Now, Jacob is saying they're going to be divided and scattered. And if you look at the history throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that's exactly what will happen to the line of Simeon and Levi. They won't get their own land. They won't get to inhabit 
the land. They won't get to own the inheritance. Levi himself, his people will become the Levites. They'll be the ones who will oversee the temple. They'll be the ones who will serve the temple. I want you to hear the good news in this alongside the bad. While they don't get a part of that inheritance of the land, they still play a major role in God's redemptive purposes. So if you're here today and you're like, okay, but I kind of line up with these guys a lot more than I line up with Joseph, who seemed to be righteous in everything that happened. I line up more with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi because I line up more with Simeon and Levi. Like I'm the guy who gets really angry at injustice. I'm the guy who just wants 10 minutes alone in a room with people who are hurting children. Like, give me that right and everything will be set straight. I'm that guy, right? I want justice and I want vengeance. That's my fleshly reaction to this world around me. I I line up more with these guys. I get where they're coming from. So how could God use me? Here's the good news. Levi was greatly used by God. The Levites were greatly used in God's redemptive plan to draw people into worship, to serve the body of God's people and to serve the temple. So I don't want you to feel like they're outside of God's plan. One thing that doesn't happen here is at no point does Jacob look at one of his scoundrel sons and say, you're no longer a son. He doesn't kick them out of the family. No, he he actually extended the family to Joseph's boys. So he's not about kicking us out of the family. He's about redeeming us inside the family. He's about working. He's about changing us, transforming us. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi had never been brought low in their life to a place of humility and repentance. Can you imagine standing beside your dying father and him calling you on your sin and telling you that all of your future generations will be reaping the consequences of your sin and how humiliating that must have been? I want you to hear this truth. Though we are in the family, there are still consequences for our sins. But here's the good news. All of the consequences for our sins, all of the discipline of the Lord is for redemptive factors. It's for the purpose of redeeming ourselves and others. God is constantly disciplining us so that others will learn from our mistakes. Not so that we would be a counsel to anyone. He says, I don't want to be in their counsel but so that we would be transformed so that others could see the redemptive work of God. This is going to happen with the descendants of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. God is disciplining his sons or Jacob's sons in this way. And then you move on to the surprise of all surprises. Judah. At this point, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they've been humiliated. They've been humbled. They've been put in a place where they are no longer going to be preeminent. And you come to the fourthborn, Judah. And Jacob has a lot to say about Judah. And you would expect that everything that Jacob has to say about Judah would be just as bad as the other three. But instead, we see blessing, not curse, not condemnation, not discipline. We see blessing. Look at verse 8. Judah Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. How ironic that Judah will now be the one that all the brothers will bow down to when it was Joseph who had everybody bow down to him and they sent him into slavery because of it. Now Judah will be the king. Judah will be the one who will lead. Judah is a lion's cub. 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? That sounds scary. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is all good stuff for Judah. How did Judah, the one who ran after prostitutes and impregnated his daughter-in-law, how does he get the blessing? How's that happen? It seems like you would just lump him in with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Why is he set apart and why does he get the blessing? And I want you to hear two things, two truths about this. One, it's by grace. God's kingdom is always built by grace. It's not built by what you deserve. It's built by grace. And so God is working an act of grace here to utilize Judah for his purposes. And the second reality is the difference between Judah and his brothers is that Judah had been brought low to a place of humility and repentance. Remember, he said of his daughter-in-law, she is more righteous than I am. He's brought to a place where he's now humbled. He understands his sin. He's repented of his sins and he's been transformed. He's been changed from the one who would run from the truth to the one who would now sacrifice himself for his brothers. He's been so transformed by God's grace that now he's, he's used in the kingdom. Not only is he used, but he's elevated in the kingdom. Hear this great truth of the gospel. Those who are humbled in their sin to a point of repentance will have their heads lifted up by the Lord to a place of preeminence. Those who are first shall be last. Those who are last shall be first. Judah is going to be a walking reminder of that. Judah and his descendants will be a living reminder of God's grace. Judah is going to be a lion, dominant and fierce. He's going to be a royal king and ruler. And it says here that Judah's line will reign forever. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, until what he deserves comes to him, until his inheritance, until all of the tribute of the nations comes to him, until all the kingdoms of the world worship him. He will hold the scepter. He will be the one who is king. He's going to bring prosperity and blessing. If you look at it, he binds his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He, he actually, there's so much vine and blessing and prosperity that he's, he's not tying his, his donkeys up to the old stump. He's tying them up to the vine because yeah, well, there's plenty of vines. And on top of that, he even takes the vines and he takes the, the wine that comes and he's able to wash his clothes in the, in the wine. He's taking what would be water and he's turning it into wine. He's taking water things and turning... There's so much prosperity. There's so much that he owns. He brings prosperity out of all the brokenness. He replaces the thorn and sweat for wine and feasting. If you want a little picture of this, this is what I want you to see. Judah would be the one from whom David would come. But we also know from David's line would come another, the Messiah, Jesus. And from the tribe of Judah comes the one who would be the lamb who is slain, but also the one who will return as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And how will we know him? 
How will we know Him? How will we know Him when He came to this earth? How would the people in the first century know Him? How would the people of Israel know Him? How would the people around Jerusalem know Him? How would the people around a little town called Cana know Him? Well, He would be at a wedding feast. and His mother would come to Him and say, They're out of wine. Can you do something about this? So what does He do? Takes basins of water and turns them into wine. If people were paying attention to what's happening in that moment, besides the fact that they were drunk on all the wine that they drank too much of, but if they were paying attention to what's happening, he's showing them, I am the fulfillment of all that was promised to Judah. People memorized these scriptures. They knew the blessings and especially the blessings of their own tribe they would be able to see he's the one who takes water and turns it into wine. He's the one who brings prosperity out of nothingness. Judah would be the forefather of the Messiah. What a blessing. But hear me again. It doesn't come because Judah is so awesome. Judah was not best son. And Judah was not best brother. I mean, Joseph wins that hands down, right? He wins best son and best brother hands down. He's the best looking, he's the most powerful, he's the guy who has the position. He saved his entire family from dying in the famine. You win best son. Right? And when your brothers throw you into a pit, sell you into slavery, right? And you forgive them, you win best brother. Like you have that over everybody for the rest of your life. Every family reunion, every time you all get together, when, you, when they say, yeah, remember that one thing I did for you? Yeah, I forgave you guys after you sold me into slavery. I win. I mean, he's best. He, you get it, right? Judah cannot be the best because Joseph is in the family. So how is it that Judah gets this great distinction? I've said it before, and I, I think it's pretty obvious. If you were to choose, based on the world standards, which of the brothers should have the blessing of being the forefather of the king of kings, Joseph is the one. But that's not the way God works. God takes the lesser things of the world and makes them great. God takes broken things and He makes them new. God takes sinful mankind and He redeems them and makes them into His children and He blesses them. And by His grace, He works miracles. God is constantly doing that and we have another picture of it here. So Judah is another example of God's grace. He goes on, Jacob goes on with the rest of the brothers, rest of his sons, and he continues to bless them. And these blessings hold with them great prosperity and military strength. But I want you to pay attention to the cost that's so often paid for having earthly strength and earthly prosperity. Zebulun is a good example of this. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. If you look at Zebulun and the land that they inherited, they they actually got their wealth from the sea, but they had no ports of their own. They actually traded in international trade, but they found themselves always beholden to other people in order to have a port. They always found themselves having to sell themselves in order to get prosperity. Issachar is a better example. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. Look at him as a strong donkey. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing to be a strong donkey, but he's a strong donkey. And the strong donkey has this ability, but what does he do? He goes and he, he, he gets himself between the sheepfolds and he bows down and he just gets really comfortable. 
He finds some shade, and instead of using his strength, he actually just gets really comfortable. And look at what's said of him. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Issachar wanted comfort, and he was willing to sell his own freedom in order to get comfort. And what you're going to find from the people of Issachar, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to comfortably live. They're going to get prosperity, but as slaves, trading their freedom for earthly comfort. And when I read about these two guys, I'm, I'm reminded of this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? These guys weren't even gaining the whole world. They were just gaining comfort. Let's just be honest. If we're, if we're taking a step back here, not many of us in this room would be in danger of wanting to gain the whole world. right? When I was a kid, teenager, we watched a show... Pinky and the Brain. Anybody ever watch Pinky and the Brain? Some of you are maybe. Yeah, it's so good. Every day, Pinky and the Brain, it was, what are we going to do today? Try to take over the world. That's what they were going to do. They were mice. But they were going to try to take over the world. They had this grand scheme every day of how they were going to take over the world. I don't think many of us in this room are sitting here plotting, how am I going to take over the world and gain the whole world? We just want to be comfortable. I mean, I think if we're being honest, that's what we're after. Just, just give me enough of the world so that I'm comfortable and I'm not constantly at, world, at war with the culture around me and everybody around me. I just want to, want to be comfortable enough that I fit in just enough, right? That Jesus is a good enough add-on to my life that I still can fit into the world and, and it's all good. And, and that a lot of times that's the reason why we... We rail against the world so much that's around us because when they start to deny our Jesus, we go, I don't know what to do with them anymore because I need them in order to feel comfortable. And I hate to say it, but in my own life and I think in a lot of people's lives that are Christians, what we find ourselves warring against in the culture is less against their hatred of Jesus and more against their unwillingness to let me be comfortable. they start hating Jesus, my life just gets a lot more uncomfortable, a lot more difficult. These two brothers and their people weren't selling their souls to gain the whole world. They were just selling their souls to gain comfort. I find myself in danger of that daily. And it's only by God's grace, it's only by His power, only by me remembering how good He is and the promises that He's made to me that I know that one day there is prosperity beyond measure that is coming. I just don't get to experience all of it now that I'm able to stand and say, you know what, I'm not forfeiting my soul for a little bit of temporary comfort. Oh, that we would learn, learn from the discipline of these brothers, these sons. Zebulun would have prosperity from the sea. Issachar would be comfortable, but would be a slave. Dan, we see with Dan, he's the tribe of judges. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path. And here that serpent and viper is as evil as that sounds. He's actually just really sneaky and stealthy in his military ability because he's fighting or he's biting the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. And he is the one who brings salvation. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. When we get to Judges, like in seven years, when we get to Judges, it was a joke, kind of. Um, 
When we get to Judges, what you're going to find is you're going to see people from the tribe of Dan. You're going to see one in particular that I, I, I think you're aware of. His name is Samson. He was really good in battle, right? To the point that God didn't want him to rest in his own strength, right? We see, we see Samson then in his strength being able to take down entire buildings and peoples. Right? God is the one who gave him the strength. He's able to be stealthy. He's able to bite the heels of the enemy. Dan is going to be the one who brings salvation to his people. In the book of Judges, over and over and over again, the people fall into sin, and then God brings another nation in order to oppress them, and they go, Oh, God, help us and bring us salvation. And so God would raise up a judge, and that judge would come and bring them salvation and deliver them from their oppressors. And the people would go, Praise the Lord! And until that judge died, they would all praise the Lord, then the judge would die, and they'd go back to their wicked ways, and God would bring oppression from a nation, and then, Oh, God, save us! Dan would be the one that God would use to constantly remind the people of his power, of God's power, and his ability to save. And then the rest of the brothers bring strength and prosperity. They have a blessing of strength and prosperity, power and hope. You see, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Even Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Verse 27. In the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Each of these brothers brings a, a, a measure of hope, of strength and prosperity, power and hope. And yet their blessings are very, very earthly. Look at that. They get earthly prosperity. But there's no real mention of God's favor. There's no real mention of God's work among them. Instead, it's their own power, their own ability, their own strength. They often miss God's work in their lives. They wouldn't be unlike their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather. They often miss God's work in their life. Then we come to Joseph. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. At that point, you can imagine the brothers going, oh, so we're the archers, right? You, you would kind of get the picture. We get the illustration. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for reminding us. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. It doesn't say his arms were agile. It says his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. I want you to see the distinction in this blessing poured out on Joseph because Joseph's life was now revealed to be a life full of blessings by God. God's grace, God's power being evident in Joseph's life. The difference between Joseph and his brothers was that Joseph's life was full of blessing from the Lord. Even his hardships, even the evil that had been done to him, God had established him and restored him and renewed him and given him the strength to endure by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. 
May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. What's different from Joseph? Joseph's blessing comes from above. Joseph is a man who gained so much of the world, but it was always by God's work. It was never by his wisdom. It was never by his ability. Even when he had been brought before Pharaoh to interpret dreams, he says, it's not me. I'm not going to be interpreting this. God is the one who will interpret the dream. It was always God who was working, and Joseph was always able to see that it was by God's hand, by God's might, the mighty one who had protected him, the shepherd who had provided for him, the stone who established him, the almighty one who would bless him from heaven. And I ask you today, I implore you today, I, I challenge you today, which one is better, blessings from heaven or blessings from earth? And I think so often... We forego the blessings that are promised to us from heaven. Every spiritual blessing that's in Christ Jesus. Because we're not experiencing all of them every day. Because they're hard to grasp for us. Because we can't see them. Because we have to look with eyes of faith, not eyes of sight, in order to actually grab hold of them. Because hope comes from the future realities, not from a present reality. You realize... We so much, oh, that brings me such hope. And oftentimes we're telling people, oh, you bring me such hope because they give you something today. That's not hope. Hope isn't something that's coming. I've had so many people come to me and I'll say just a word to them and they'll say, oh, that brings me such hope. Well, it wasn't meant to bring you hope. It was meant to bring you comfort. Comfort is for today. Hope is for the future. We're, we're people of hope. The future can bring us hope. God has promised us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And if you're not experiencing those blessings today, know that they are stored up for you in heaven. You will get them. And if that's the case, I'm willing to wait. Because all of those future blessings are going to outweigh anything this world could give me. But I think in my life and in many lives, people who call ourselves by the name of Jesus, we would too often say, We're trying to grab a little bit of the earthly blessing along the way. Just grab a little bit of the earthly blessing. Just get a little bit more comfort. Just a reminder, every single one of these, of God's people, A, had been a sojourner their entire life. Had never been a citizen of these nations. And now, they were in Egypt, a foreign land, They didn't belong to this world. You and I are citizens of heaven if we are believers in Christ. We don't belong to this world. Why would we keep grabbing up things that don't belong to us? Because the more we grab them up, the more we belong to them. Have you ever noticed that about possessions? You don't own them, they own you. You ever notice that about the things of this earth? You can't own them. They will always own you. I, I used this illustration before and I'll use it again. It's like new cars, right? What happens when you buy a new car? As soon as you drive it off the lot, what happens? Depreciation, right? You now, you're like, oh, I own a new car. Unless you paid cash for it. No, you don't. The bank now owns you. It's just the reality of the way the world works. The more of this world that we want to grab, I'm not saying not go to, not 
don't go get a new car, right? What I'm saying is the more that we want of this world, the more the world owns us. Which is why we're told in 1 John that when we love the things of the world, the love of the Father cannot coexist with that love of the things of the world. We're warned against the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life because when those things come in, they root out and they kick out the love of the Father. The blessings of heaven are rooted out and kicked out when we seek the blessings of the world. When we store up for ourselves in storehouses on earth the things of this world in order to be comfortable, we're no longer storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Oh, that we would not fall into the trap of the other brothers that would live a life. May their discipline be to our good that we would learn from their mistakes. And we would seek blessing that comes from above, from the Mighty One, from the Shepherd, from the Almighty One who would bless forevermore, bless from heaven. That we would seek out the blessings that come from above, blessings of the deep, blessings that can only come from God. So all of that's a lot to cover, and I hope now what I'll be able to do as I close is just give you a couple of categories that will help you. So don't tune me out yet. I'm not quite done. But I want you to see some categories because you may sit here and go, yeah, I'm not really like Reuben, Simeon, Levi. I never murdered anybody. Um, never slept with my, you know, brother's mother. Um, not like Judah, you know, Zebulun and Issachar. Yeah, maybe I can see a little bit of myself there, but I, I think I got that under control. Dan, definitely not going to be anybody's judge. I'm not going to be protecting Israel. Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Benjamin, nobody's ever going to call me a ravenous wolf. So I don't know how this all fits in with me. Here's what I want you to see. is just a few categories that I hope will help you process through all of this. First of all, see through all of this the ongoing reality of sin. Jacob is not making these blessings within a vacuum. Each of his sons had sinned. Each of his sons was living a life that was still eaten up with sin, that was still going to deal with sin and the curse so there is an ongoing reality of sin. Even for those who are in the family, even for those of us who are believers in Christ, sin is an ongoing reality. And there are basically two types of sin. There's the socially reprehensible sin, like sleeping with your daughter-in-law. Socially reprehensible. People generally look at that and frown upon it. Right? But they wouldn't necessarily frown upon wanting to be comfortable. But both are called sin. So there are socially reprehensible and socially acceptable sins. And understand that those socially acceptable sins are just as dangerous, maybe more dangerous, for those of us who find ourselves in Christ. Because as believers in Christ, as I've used this illustration before, we know that sin that looks like a cobra, the spitting poison at us, is something to be avoided. Right? But too often we find ourselves stepping on the dangerous snake that's even more deadly that's hiding in the leaves. Trying to be comfortable. Trying to avoid the major sins. We step into legalism. We step into comfort. We step into all the things that the world might offer us that are acceptable. What are acceptable sins? Pride. Pride's an acceptable sin in our culture. 
what's an acceptable sin? What is an acceptable? What is a sin that you and I have made acceptable? And how would we turn ourselves over to the Lord to say, redeem us from that? Because there is another great truth, and that's the glorious redemption from our sin. Each of these men is kept in the family. And God will utilize each of them for His purposes because He will redeem them from their sins. He will save His people from their sins. He will bring a Redeemer for all of Israel, not just for the ones who got it right. In fact, when He comes in, it was the people who thought they got it right that Jesus had very little to do with. He kept telling them, well, you're not sick, so you don't need a doctor. It's the people who know their sin that will find salvation and redemption. God brings glorious redemption from evils we have done. Because God has a sovereign plan and He is a sovereign God. And His sovereign plan will never be derailed by our sin and sinfulness. And that's really good news, isn't it? You cannot derail God's plan. None of these brothers with their sinfulness could derail God's plan. None of them by them being scattered among uh, the peoples, by them continuing in a way that was worldly, could derail God's plans. No, God would bring one who would redeem His people from their sins. He cannot be derailed. And that's really good news on one hand for the believer and really scary news for the world. Because God will bring justice. Go back to the picture of Judah. There's good news when he starts turning water into wine, isn't it? But then when he starts washing his clothes in wine, there's a another picture there, and that's the picture of violence. That in Christ, those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, His blood would cover all of our sin because of violence done to Him. But for those who would not trust Christ, He's coming back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when He comes back, there will be hell to pay. And when that happens, it will be too late. There will be truly judgment forever for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus. We call that place hell. And it will be a place of suffering. It will be a place where all of the suffering that was placed on Jesus for those who believe now is, is felt eternally for those who didn't believe. My plea to you, my call to you, don't be caught on that side of the line of the tribe of Judah. Turn today from your sin. Be humbled today. Recognize your position before Him. Recognize your need for Him. And turn in faith to Him by His grace. Trust Him today for what He's done. He's taking your sin upon Himself because He is the Redeemer from our sins and He is the one with the sovereign plan that can't be derailed and if you're here today and you're a believer in Christ and you say, yeah, but my bigger problem is I, I praise the Lord that He saved me from my sin, but all this evil has been done to me and continues to be done from, to me. Just a reminder of Joseph in this story. God is also the Redeemer from the evil that's been done to us. He redeems every single one of those situations. So if you're here and you're like, I just want justice, I just want vengeance, here's what I want you to hear. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord and He will bring justice. And when He brings justice and vengeance, you will get grace and you will get mercy. And He will redeem even the evil done to us. For Joseph, Joseph, the evil that was done to Joseph brought salvation for God's people. 
and all that we would be people who would trust him enough. So what do we do? Faith requires that we wait and we hope. Faith requires that we wait with hope for God's promises to be fulfilled. But here's the good news of what faith also does. Faith also allows us to and enables us to wait with hope. <laughs> doesn't just require it, it also enables us to do it. So for those of us who are in Christ Jesus today, here's what faith allows you to do. It allows you to have eyes that trust, that see the world around us and know that that's not the end of the story. Because the eyes, the, the eyes that we use today in this world also have eyes of faith that are able to see the fulfillment of the promises in the future. I just ask you, is it worth waiting for? Jacob was on his deathbed and he didn't get to see but a small sliver of the promises fulfilled. And what he called out, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Can you call that out to the Lord today in hope and in faith? I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait till all of this comes true and I'm going to trust you in the meantime. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. That we would not find ourselves making ourselves so comfortable in this world that we would no longer be waiting to be saved from this world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would now show us your faithfulness. Show us how truly faithful you've been, how truly faithful you will continue to be so that we will be people of faith waiting with hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Stand together. We're going to.